So I want to start because there are a few things that happen that I'm calling Christian truisms. And these are things that we believe as, as Christians, as part of the Christian faith, and they're absolutely true. But sometimes we combine them into ways that aren't true. Let me give you an example of that. One of them, a truism, is God can't change. It's impossible for him to change. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Cannot change. And the reason he can't change is because he's not perfect. If he changed, he wouldn't be perfect anymore. So it's impossible for God to change. He cannot change. He promises that. Now, a belief of the Protestant church is that the Bible cannot change either. You cannot add to or subtract from the Bible. It is unchangeable in that way. God gave us the Bible he intended us to have, and that's it. And it's not to change. And then the last thing that we find out, you kind of put these together, is the unchangeable word, that's his Bible, of an unchangeable God says that God wants a relationship with us. He's not one of these distant gods like Norse mythology or something that lives off in you know, some kind of a cold planet. He's here. He's involved. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to get to know you on a very personal level. He wants you to know him on a very personal level. And then we take those three things, which are absolutely true, and we come up with this thing that is absolutely not true. Therefore, our relationship with God cannot change. That's wrong. It's, it's, it's wrong from a logical standpoint, but it's also wrong from a theological standpoint because God's relationship with us constantly changes because we change. And good news, uh, we're supposed to change. In fact, God expects us to change. So we're supposed to have a relationship with God that's constantly changing. And he tells us all the way back in Ezekiel, he says, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a new heart because the one you have is turned to stone. And I'm going to put spirit within you. I'm going to take that heart of stone out of your flesh and I'm going to return a heart of, a heart of flesh back into you. He said, I'm going to change you. I'm going to change you from the heart out. That's how I'm going to change you. And that's what he tells us. And then we see that later on in Philippians, Paul picking up on something. He says, look, I'm sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. So when you get saved, it's not the end of your journey. It's the beginning of your journey. A lot of people kind of confuse those things. In other words, all of Christianity comes down to saying a magic prayer. And you can fit it on a card. And you say that magic prayer, you're saved. That's it. And if you don't say that magic prayer, you're not saved. It's like we're Harry Potter or something with, with, you know, with uh, different spells. That's not how Christianity is. That's not how Jesus says it is. He says, no, he, he came in order for that you have a life with him and you change throughout that life because you're going to become more like him, right? So on a personal level, we are supposed to mature. Paul, Paul uses the example of children. He says, you know, you, you, you need to, as, as you start out like with, as a spiritual child, you want to grow into a spiritual adult. The problem is a lot of us don't, and it's not a new problem. It's a problem that we see that takes place way back then because he writes this in a letter to Corinthians. He says, look, I couldn't speak to you when I first met you like spiritual people or adults because you were carnal, which means you just live to please yourself. That's all. And you were babies in Christ. You're babies, little tiny babies. And I fed you with milk because that's what you do with little tiny babies, not with solid food, because until now you're not able to receive it. And guess what? You're still not able to receive it because you're just living for yourself. You're not, you've never grown up. I met you, you were babies. I gave you some milk. Guess what? You're still babies. And this is the letter of Paul that's in our Bible. Here's my thinking. Don't you think somewhere there's a letter that Paul wrote to some church that said, oh, thank God I can give you meat now. I can give you solid food. There's, I think he wrote that letter, but, but it's interesting to me was that letter didn't get put into our Bible. Why do you suppose that is? I think it's because God knew exactly what kind of people we are and what kind of letter we needed. And we need a letter about babies, not grown-ups, because we continue to act like babies. And, and we want God to keep 
treating us like babies. When, every time we cry, we want him to come running because that's what babies get, right? Some of you are parents, you know what it's like. The baby starts crying, especially if you're new parents and it's your first baby, you know, the first baby starts crying. Man, he come flying. When Emily was a baby, I bought one of these little tiny baby monitors. Big mistake, by the way, because it picked up our neighbors and they were mean to their kid. You know, I'd be hearing these things and their kid would be crying and not her. I didn't need it for her. I, you know, she had a bedroom down the hall from us. I could hear her when she coughed. I would be awake, you know, and I, I'm a light sleeper anyway. I didn't need any baby monitor. I knew exactly when she started crying. I could hear her start. I could see, I could hear the, <laughs> before the, before the cry happened. I'm up out of bed already and moving in there because that's what you do with babies because they, you, they're helpless and you're totally taking care of them and you're trying to make sure they know that they're taken care of and they're provided for and you love them and all these things that you do. The worst thing a parent goes through if a baby's crying, they won't stop crying and it's because you just don't know why you know and you'll be calling everybody you know I, I tried everything nothing's working you know and so that's how we treat babies that's how God treats babies too the problem is we want to stay there so every time I cry he comes running I, that's what I want really because it's easy to be a baby he says everything revolves around you it's so it's simple and I just want to sit here and when I cry out to God I want him to come running and he did when you were a baby but he wants you to grow up Think about that. You do too, parents. You want your kids to grow up. A little baby that's crying and wetting themselves and stuff may be okay as a baby. It's not so cool for a 13-year-old to be doing that. At some point, you got to say, you know what? You know, we got to get past this point. Um, when Emily was a little toddler, I'm telling a bunch of stories on her today, but uh, when she was a little toddler, uh, you know, she would, we got to that potty training phase, and it's always kind of a, 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 kind of a hit and miss thing initially. And I was working one day, and she was playing, and all of a sudden she looked up, uh-oh. And she gets up on her little tiny chubby legs and she went running back the hall towards the bathroom. I thought, wow, look at that. So I follow her back, you know, the distance and son of a gun, you know, she goes in there with her little pull-ups and she goes potty and I was so proud of her, you know, I was like, wow, she like ran there all the way by herself and mostly made it. So it was really cool, you know, and so and I'm picking her up and, you know, clean her up and we're saying, you know, singing songs. I'm just such a big girl now and everything else. I'm so proud of her. I come back, put her down. And I go back into my office to work, and as I was walking through the door, God said this to me, when do I get to feel that way about you? Because there was some sin that I thought was hidden that was not. And I kept holding on to it. And I suddenly had this image, you know, of what's in a diaper, and my sin took on a whole new element. It wasn't just a little thing anymore, right? God's saying, when, when do I get, the, when do you grow up? When, when are you going to grow up? By the way, not that day, and it'll be years and years and years, but we continue to act like babies. And in fact, what will happen is if we're growing up and God doesn't seem to be answering our prayers, we'll go back to baby times because that worked. You know, when I said this prayer that certain way, God answered it. I'm going to go back to that way. Well, it's like, you know, sometimes you watch a kid. If you're, if you're like, the th like I was the third and the fourth kid comes along and the baby steals all the thunder, sometimes the kid regresses. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Like they won't say their R's right and things because they try to do baby talk because they see the baby's getting all the attention and they miss it. Sometimes we do that in our, in our Christian lives. We kind of go back to baby talk. Well, this worked before and God seems to like that. I'm going to go back to that. No, God wants us to grow up. And, and as we grow up, he's not going to do the same things he did for us when he was babies. Some newborn Christians have the stupidest prayers answered. Like they'll tell me that. I was like, you've got to be kidding me, God. You answered that? You know, I'll be listening to what they prayed for and how they prayed for it. I thought, oh, and you answered that? Yeah, because they're newborns and he's trying to teach them to trust him. But as you grow up and we're supposed to mature, he doesn't need to do all these things like he used to. Think about it. 
Think about how your life progressed. You get to the point where you get independent and, and, and your parents start expecting you to know what to do and you just do them. You don't need reading short all the time. You're a good boy for doing it. You just do it because you learn to do it. But that's not us, man. We want God to move mountains because it's blocking our view of the sunset. I mean, whatever we want, we want God to cater to it and just do it. And, and our relationship with him is supposed to change. When is it ever going to be okay for us to grow up? Just this, by the way, is a mini sermon, has nothing to do with the major prophecy thing, but I couldn't help myself uh, because God was yelling at me about this. So I thought, okay, he's going to tell me about it. I'm going to tell you about it because um, I deal with the same stuff. I still want God to treat me like a little baby sometimes, and I need to grow up. I do. And I, I've been with him a long time. He's shown me over and over again he cares. I don't need to ask that question anymore. Two questions that I think we should pray at least once a year. And maybe twice a year, but not more than that, because sometimes change takes a long time to see. Number one, I think it's fair to ask God, in what ways have I changed this year for the good? You know, what, what have you been working on in my life that I've done? And then, you know, when you're done with that, you know, praise the Lord for it. But then ask, what ways do I still need to change? Because we need to change. We need to grow up. And God's trying to get us to grow up. And if, if we want to be able to have an adult relationship with God, which is what we really want, we've got to grow up first. We've got to stop acting like babies. Okay. Like I said, free sermon, no charge for that one. Now, let me get back to the other thing. In the same way that God's relationship changes with you personally, his relationship has changed with his people throughout time. The God's relationship in Genesis is not the same as God's relationship in the book of Acts. It's changed. And we have to understand that it's okay that it changed because God's relationship will change as his people change. I'm going to show you that, and this comes really back to the prophecy in a very, very big way, and you'll see in a minute. So in the first book, the first and second book of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, we see something called perfect communion. You know, communion, harmony, peace, and love. And I know as I start using those terms, some of you as old as me remember this, you know. I like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. Yeah, it wasn't like that, okay? Just so you know, those of you, because I can tell when I start using words like communion, harmony, and peace, everybody's like, oh, I remember that commercial. Some of you remember that commercial. 1971, some of you did not remember that commercial. But um, anyway, but that's how it was initially. It was a communion, and, and, and it was perfect. Exactly the way God wanted it, exactly the way God designed it, that's what it was. That's in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, of course, is when separation happens. Adam and Eve sin. They choose evil. And so he has to kick them out of the garden. They're not, allowed to, they're not allowed to be in this place anymore. But he still seems to be, he still seems to be in the place. It's just they can't come in anymore. He still seems to be talking to them because in Genesis 4, we see him still talking to Cain and Abel, like he's there. He's walking and he sees, you know, he comes by and visits. He's still on planet Earth. Sin has entered planet Earth, but he's still quite there, you know, really completely there. The only difference is that they can't be with him in the garden is what it seems like. Again, I'm kind of reading between the lines a little bit. But when, when Cain kills Abel, God comes and talks to him. In fact, he talks to him before as well. So he's actually speaking to him. It's not a vision. It's not an angel. It seems like God's still there. Now, over time, we will see that God kind of seems to, talk about God the Father, kind of seems to leave. Uh, and we see him kind of looking at evil from an implied distance. This is in Noah's day. When the Bible talks about God seeing the evil, you get the sense that it's from a distance, like he's watching it and not happy to see all the evil in the world. Now, when I was a kid, this was kind of taught to us on Sunday school class that God is being perfect and he can't look at you do evil and it hurts him too much, which is why he had to retreat. 
And I don't believe that at all because I think God sees us do evil. Uh, and you need to know that. When you're sinning, it's not like you can... Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen those like TV movies or something when a husband's having an affair and they're in the bedroom and uh, his wife's picture's on the bed, bed stand and he puts the picture down like, before it happens, like that matters. Well, that doesn't work with God. You can't just simply put his, you know, take his cross and turn it backwards and something he didn't see you. No, he's right there watching you, which is why uh, Paul describes it as he grieves when it happens. He actually creates a, a separation from you. But he still sees it. But I believe that the earth cannot bear God's glory anymore. Because what happens over time is perversion and sin ruin this world. And the world you see is not the world God designed. You, know, you need to know that. Some of the things you hate the most about the world, God didn't design, sin did. Cancer, for example, is a perversion of healing. God didn't design cancer, he designed healing. Perversion created cancer. And so a lot of the things that we see that we really hate in this world was created by sin, not God. And we blame God for it, but it's not his fault. We did it. And I believe that like most things, it gets worse, you know, the law of entropy, it gets worse over time. And I believe that at first it was just a little bit of sin and then that sin kept getting worse and worse and worse. I believe the world got so corrupted that it can't withstand the glory of God anymore because the Hebrew word for glory is actually weight. I believe it can't withstand the full weight of God's glory. I think it would actually damage the earth. I believe he's withdrawn to protect us, not because he can't handle it. I think he's actually had to. Now, so if that happens, uh, we see like in Genesis 11, this is the Tower of Babel story. God comes to earth and he speaks to no one. He speaks out loud, but he's not speaking to anybody. He just speaks out loud so that we know what he's thinking. Uh, and he doesn't, but he doesn't go speaking to anybody. He doesn't go. Uh, and we see that, in, like I said, in Genesis 11:5, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower they were building. And he saw that and said, well, if they keep using my language, they can build anything. Because they actually have the language of God at that time. And he takes it away from them. Okay, in Genesis 17, he comes, he speaks to Abraham. And this starts a pattern then in the rest of the Old Testament. He'll speak to people who speak on his behalf. He chooses people to speak to. And he's obviously choosing about their hearts. You know, there's things about these people that we can't see, but he does see. And so he comes to Abraham and he speaks to him, and he says, I need you to get up and follow me. And it seems as though the Lord appeared to Abraham. It seems as though he does it in a vision. Don't know. He may have come physically. We know the angels still come. Um, there's sometimes the angel of the Lord, which most theologians believe is Jesus Christ himself, who comes and speaks to people. It may be that. He also speaks to Moses through a burning bush, you know, so he can speak through things. But you don't see the, the, the interaction that you see in the book of Genesis. He's picking people he will speak to, and then they will speak on his behalf, right? And through the entire Old Testament, he will speak to emissaries to relay his words to the rest of the people. That, that's, that's true for the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, and we see, and this is a small scattering of them, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, jo Joshua, Samuel, Nathan the prophet, David, Solomon, Elijah, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, all the prophets. He speaks to them, and then they speak on his behalf. Now, in the Old Testament, these people get different titles. Judges, prophets, priests, and kings, which sounds like a great name for a rock and roll band. I don't know. It's a great name. But that's, that's, what, that's what they are, though. The judges, the prophets, the priests, and kings speak for God. And usually it's uh, prophets, but there are sometimes the priests like Samuel or judges do. And every now and then you'll get a David where you actually have the king. But, so that's who speaks. Now, the people don't speak to God directly because, and we talked about this last week, they can't bear his glory. They couldn't even bear the reflection of his glory. They were so sinful. And, and you need to understand something. I don't know if I made this point last week or not. When we said the people didn't want to see God in his glory, it wasn't just they're afraid of God. They wanted to keep sinning. 
You understand that. It's like, it's hard to sit there in the glory of God and sin. And so it's easier for me if I keep God at a distance and I can come over here and keep sinning and I'll come to God when I need to. But they couldn't even bear to look at a residual bit of his glory. What happened when Moses went up and met with God for 40 days, he came down from the mountain and he had been in the presence of God's glory. And it's almost like, you know, you take a, a pin and you rub it against a magnet and the pin picks up some magnetic properties. It seems to be what happened with glory because he goes in there and he comes down. He's actually got God's glory reflecting off of him. And the people cannot even look at that. He comes down and Moses didn't even know it, but his skin shone while he talked with them. And when Aaron and all the children saw him, they could not come near him. It's like, we can't even look at that. Like the residual glory is too much. So whenever he came down, he put a veil on. He, you know, people say, hey, we can't talk to you. And he had to put this veil on so he could talk to them. And when we have to go- talk to God, he took the veil back off. There's this residual glory from God. They couldn't bear to look at it. And that kind of begun, begins to, you know, God calls them to him. We talked about this last week and they won't go. And so then we see that God will actually protect them from his glory because they can't bear it. They can't bear it. They can't bear his glory. So they'll actually protect him from it. And we see this in, in instructions he gives to Exodus. Now, this is a little tiny diagram of what the tabernacle looked like. It was just a tent. It wasn't a building. It was just a tent. And, it, and you know, this, this first part here, this 20-foot part there, that's, uh, that's just where the people would be. And then there's 10 feet reserved in the back, and there'd be a veil put between it. That's where the Ark of the Covenant went, you know, way before Indiana Jones found it. That's where the Ark of the Covenant went. And so the people weren't allowed in that area, and they didn't want to go there because if they looked at the glory of God in the ark, that's where the tablets, the, the stone tablets that Moses brought down were kept. If they saw that, they couldn't bear it and they'd die, like the Nazis in the movie. <laughs> they couldn't bear it and they died. So this was, this, was, uh, this was how it was originally set up, and it was set up, that veil there was set up to protect the people from God's glory. And that's why he chose emissaries to speak on his behalf because they couldn't. And by the way, later on, of course, they're going to build it up and... You know, this is uh, later, this is after Solomon, the guy comes after Solomon. Look at the Holy of Holies now. Wow, they made that thing huge. Uh, but, you know, so they, they want to make a big dramatic thing. But in, in that area in the back, is called the Holy of Holies. That's where the glory of God would be. And they did not want to go anywhere near that, right? They could not go near it because of his glory. So fast forward out of the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus comes and Jesus speaks for God. This is a perfect, perfect, perfect translation for the first time. There's no humanism at all. It's just God because God's God's speaking through Jesus perfectly. Now, he is speaking for God. Note that. He says, I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. So he came and he spoke the word of God directly. And he taught his disciples a lot more than we have written down. He taught them a lot of things. And so that was part of his reason here. But then the resurrection comes and it does something really interesting because it removes the barrier between us and God's glory. And we see this in the book of Matthew. uh, When Jesus had cried out again, that's his last breath on the cross, in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, the rock split, and tombs broke open. Right, so a lot of things happen, but there's a symbolic and a physical thing that happened. God's, did God removed the separation between us and his glory. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we no longer have to be afraid of God's glory. We can approach it. So now it can be approachable. And so then, of course, the last thing he does is he sends his Holy Spirit to guide us with that. And that's one of the things Jesus tells him before he leaves. He says, these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And all these things I've spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. 
So the Holy Spirit's job is to usher us into all the truth, right? So the Holy Spirit's given to us. So we can now approach God directly. We don't need anything. The, the separation has been split, and this changes our relationship with God. Because sometimes, I, I, look, we teach the Old Testament here, we believe in the Old Testament, but we have to understand the relationship with the Israelites in the Old Testament is not the same as the relationship we have today. We have a relationship they never had because the veil is torn, God's glory is open to all, and everybody can approach Him via the Holy Spirit. That changes things, and things change because of that. So um, in, in the book of Hebrews, the writer says this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness, and there is boldly, enter the Holy of Holies. You're allowed in now. Enter the Holy of Holies. Why? Because the blood of Jesus that was spilled for you. That's why you're allowed to do that. And you can go through the veil. You can get all the way through it because it's not separating you anymore. And a high priest is now over the entire house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, he's saying, yeah, I get it. You, you have issues, you have sin, but that's okay. Jesus' blood covers that. So you may approach, it's okay. We can now approach God directly. And guess what happens next? You become God's emissary. We no longer have the roles of the prophets, priests, and judges and kings. Those go away. We don't need them anymore because now you become this. We see this actually in, in, second, in 1 Peter uh, 2.9. Peter says this, God chose you to be his people. You are royal priests. Royal priests is the priests that serve the king. You are the priest to serve the king. The job that the priests had in the Old Testament were twofold. First of all, they handled all the, the, uh, the different sacrifices and redemption. We don't need that anymore because Jesus took care of it. And then the rest of what the priest did was they studied his word. They tried to stay as righteous as they could by following his word. And then they taught other people his word. Guess what your job is? To study his word, to remain righteous, and to teach others his word. You are all royal priests. He's not talking to me. He's talking to all of us. We are all now royal priests. God brought you out of darkness into wonderful light. The role of the priest has changed. And the judge role was taken away because there is now no judge but Jesus. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, when the Son of Man, that's what he's talking about himself, comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and then he will judge them. He will separate them one from another as, he separates, as a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. Judgment's coming, and he's the one who judges. So the, 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 the rule of judges is now gone. And by the way, there is now no more king but Jesus. In 2 Peter, he says this, Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king, and you're going to be entering into his kingdom. There's only one king now. That's Jesus. So we all become priests. There are no more judges but Jesus, and there are no more kings except Jesus. What happened to the role of the prophet? There's four things, right? We have prophets, priests, judges, and kings. What happened to the role of the prophet? Well, it also changes. So I want you to understand that when we're talking about bringing the gift of prophecy to the church, no one's going to be Isaiah here. No one from Spirit Chapel, I better never hear anybody from Spirit Chapel say, thus saith the Lord. For one thing, that's old King James, and no one should talk that way. But for another thing, we don't speak like that anymore because he doesn't need us to. He's, he's come with his Holy Spirit. He spoke his, his own words when Jesus walked the earth, and those were recorded in the Bible. We don't need to speak for him anymore. He doesn't need anybody to speak to him. He could directly speak to anybody now, thanks to what Jesus did. The relationship's changed. 
We don't need that prophet, but that doesn't mean prophecy isn't needed because the prophet didn't just do that. It's just that's what we focus on because it's cool. <laughs> you know, when prophets bring fire down on people's heads, it's cool. Right? That's my favorite part of the book, man. I, Elijah brings, brings fire down on people's heads. Love that. But, but that's not the only thing the prophet did. And, and there's more to it than that. So I want to show you now, because if you watch what Paul does when he describes prophecy, it is clearly different than what you see in the Old Testament. The, the role of the prophet and the role of prophecy has changed. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says this, look, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. What does that mean? Weigh carefully. They're listening to it and they're deciding if it's from God. That's what they're saying. Two or three speaking, and the other prophets that gather there are listening and saying, yes, I believe this is confirmed as, as word from God. And some are saying, nah, got a little bit of flesh in there. If a, watch this. If a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker, speaker should stop. So pictures, you've got like four, three or four prophets there, and they're all sitting there, and you're like, I'm sitting up here, I'm prophesying, and I'm telling you, and, and all of a sudden, Victoria has a revelation come to her. She says, excuse me, I need to say something. And I'm supposed to sit down, you know, and let her speak. <laughs> yeah, that'll happen. But uh, that's the idea, right? Because there's something she's going to add to this prophecy that was being given that I was missing, right? And so, and that's good for everybody, he says. Now, here's what I want you to picture. Can you picture Paul interrupting the prophet Isaiah? <laughs> you know, Isaiah comes up, thus saith the Lord, and he's giving commandments. <clears throat> Excuse me, Isaiah, I'm sorry, I had something I want to add to what you said, if I could just have a minute. No one would interrupt Isaiah. That would never happen. Paul wouldn't even, up, because Isaiah was there, thus saith the Lord. He's literally speaking for the word. You wouldn't interrupt God. Excuse me, Lord. I, I, Peter tries, but it doesn't go well for him. So you, you, you don't interrupt God when he's speaking. And when Isaiah was speaking, he was speaking for God. Thus saith the Lord. You know, this is what the Lord said. This is what it means. No one would interrupt him. And, and then he goes on in, in, in Thessalonians, another time he's talking about prophecy, he says this, don't quench the spirit. We talked about this last week. Do not despise prophetic utterances. I, I, I'm going to give you this image again because I want everybody to have it in their head because here's what he's talking about. And we want the Holy Spirit, right? We want the Holy Spirit. We want to have the spirit of healing here. We want to be able to lay hands on people and see them here. We want the Holy Spirit here. We don't want to quench the spirit. We want the spirit to be alive. That's what we want. Okay, he says, well, don't quench it. And here's how you quench it. He's actually giving you instructions on how to quench it. Despise prophecy. That's how you quench it. If you despise prophecy, you tell the Holy Spirit he's not welcome here. So again, the word quench, it's like I had a fire going here. It's kind of down to the embers and a little tiny flame. And I take a big bucket of water and I go, that's quenching. This is the imagery that Paul's giving us. If, if the Holy Spirit is here as a small flickering flame and he's trying to speak through the prophetic word, we have to, whoa, 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 no prophecy here. It's like you just took a bucket of water and dumped it on the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's actually saying. But watch how he finishes this. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Wait a minute. Could David pick and choose what parts of Nathan's prophecy to him was true? When Nathan came to him and said, you are the man and you're sinful, and your baby's going to die, and God's going to take your kingdom from you? Was David allowed to pick and choose what part of that prophecy was true? No, because Nathan was there speaking for the Lord. So clear if Paul's saying that we need to examine things, we need to pray about them, and we need to have other people gathering there to say, yes, this is true. No, that's not. Clearly, the role of the prophet and the role of prophecy has changed. In the Old Testament, by the way, if you gave a prophecy that didn't come true, you were stoned to death. That's it. 
One, it was like 100% accuracy rate or you were done. I'm going to show you next week actually a prophecy, two prophecies given to Paul uh, that, are, that are incorrect, actually in the book of Acts. I'll show you. The role of the prophet has changed in the, today's church. That doesn't mean prophecy isn't necessary. According to Paul, prophecy is the first part that really kicks up the spirit. Because if God can't speak to us, he can't work with us. We have to have God speaking to us. And like I said, where God speaks, creation begins. So I'm going to come back to this thing again here in 1 Corinthians. Follow the way of love, he says. Eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. You know, we want the gift of healing. Sure, we want that. We want the gifts of, of prophecy. Uh, but he says especially prophecy. Especially prophecy. He says, if you're going to desire any gift, the one you should want is prophecy. Not me, by the way. There's, there's a gift of miracles. I love that. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds good. And there's a gift of healing. Love that. You know, if I was to rank what I would ask for, Paul's saying, well, number one, your list better be prophecy because if God can't speak to you, he can't work with you. He needs to speak to you and you need to hear him speaking to you or else he's just a dead God on a page. He's trying to speak to us in a real way, a real living way. He says, the ones who prophesy speak to people, watch this, for edification, exhortation, and comfort. Thus saith the Lord is no longer required, but this certainly is. So the purpose of prophecy, and we'll be going into this in the following weeks, threefold prophecy, purpose, building and strengthening. Edify means to build, to build up, literally from nothing. You could also use the word create here. God creates through it. God creates through prophetic word. Encouragement is another purpose for prophecy. And comfort is a third purpose for prophecy. Nothing else. It's not to condemn. It's not to run around telling people what their sins are. That's not the purpose. It is to build up and strengthen, to encourage and to comfort. That's it. But that's enough, right? I mean, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. If we had a church that did this, build up, strengthen, encourage, and comfort, that'd be a church that people would want to come to and that we would want to be here every week. You wouldn't want to miss that because I don't want to miss the building and encouragement that's going on. I want to be strengthened. I want to have that going on. That's, that's what I want. Absolutely positively I want it. And, and I have seen examples of this in my life. I just didn't know that's what it was. Um, several years ago, before I was a pastor, so I just you know, take that, because every time I tell a story, sometimes people try to figure out who I'm talking about. This is before I was a pastor. But uh, Victoria and I were part of a small group in a church. And the small groups, you know, they were a little bit of a Bible study, a little bit of discussion. And we got to the point, and one of the people there was a mother who had a grown child. A 20-something child who moved out of the house. Some of you mothers are there. Uh, and the child wasn't living the way, you know, that the mother thought that they needed to. And they were kind of living and doing some non-Christian things, not the way the, w- not the, way the mother raised them. And they were, they were having some issues and problems in their life because of that. And uh, so we were kind of talking about it. And she was asking for prayer for the daughter. That's, the, you know, what, what, what this came up. You know, prayed and kind of told some of the story. And uh, I was going to be doing the prayer, but there's something in my spirit that prompted me to say something else. And I said, I I just got to tell you something. You're a good mom. And I didn't know. I didn't know if she was a good mom or not, right? I had, I didn't, I didn't know the daughter. I'd never met the daughter. But there was something in my spirit that told me I needed to tell her that because she was feeling like a failure. I didn't know that. And God didn't even reveal it to me. Like, she feels like a failure to speak to her. It wasn't that. It was just I felt like God wanted me to say, you're a good mom. And she started crying and thanked me for it because God was ministering to her, right? I don't know. I didn't always get it right. Still don't. Uh, but that time I did 
because God wanted that to be said. See, that's building and strengthening. And she needed that at that moment. And this is the prophetic word in the church where we can actually start speaking comfort into other people's lives. We can actually start speaking things that are building and strengthening their lives. This is what we want to be. So again, I believe that Paul knows what he's talking about when he says, look, you can pray for every gift you want, but especially we need to pray for prophecy. We need the gift of prophecy in this church. We need God speaking to us in a real way so that we can then build, strengthen, encourage, and comfort. I hope everybody's enjoying, joining with me in this whole series. Let's, let's all take some moment to pray that God returns prophecy to us. Would you all please pray with me?